Welcome to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. On this show, the team of experts from Bright Horizons College Coach aim to demystify college admissions and finance. From choosing the right college, developing a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and more. Each episode will help guide your family through the various steps of the process. Now, here is your host. Good afternoon and welcome to this week's episode of Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. My name is Ian Fisher and we are recording this on June 4th and it has been a difficult week. Uh, There is so much happening in the world right now that it can be a real struggle to focus on things like applying to college or scholarships or how to begin a personal essay. And the stresses of the college application process can feel very small when you look at everything that's happening in the world right now. One of the things that I've decided to do in these last few days is to take the time to listen and learn. I'm listening to the Black voices that are telling us that this is nothing new and, and that things should have changed yesterday. I'm sharing what I learned with my friends who aren't listening, amplifying those voices in new spaces. And because reading and education is such a powerful tool, we've talked about on the podcast in many episodes in the past, uh, I've got some great literature lined up. So right now I'm reading uh, So You Want to Talk About Race by Ijeoma Oluo, and I plan to read Me and White Supremacy by Leila Saad and How to Be an Anti-Racist by Ibram X. Kendi. Uh, For me, these are small steps, but they are necessary steps. And I hope that all of our listeners are out there thinking about what steps may be appropriate for them. I think this is a time where we can't stand still. Still, uh, this is a show about college admissions and we're going to be here every week to continue to support your efforts in the college application process. That's part of our role. But understand that you have time to take a break for this. We've got a lot of time until applications are due. And our episodes will be here. They'll be in the archives. Uh, You'll be able to download them and you can come back and engage with this process when you're ready. Okay, so with that introduction, uh, let's get to the show. This will feel like a more of a typical show, but I wanted to make sure that we acknowledge sort of what's happening in the world in advance. Um, So uh, we wanna talk a little bit about the process here of selecting a college counselor to work with for your student. And we know that's something that families are thinking about as classes end this month and the college application process starts to pick up speed toward the fall. So joining me today is Erica Blades. She is our Senior Director of Client Services. And Erica is one of the first people that families will talk to when they decide that they're interested in learning more about College Coach. So we thought you might like to meet her. So Erica, thanks a lot for uh, coming on the show today. Thanks for having me, Ian. I'm really glad to have you here. And I I just want to sort of talk a little bit about what families are looking for from counselors. Um, you, how many calls do you get uh, in a week um, in terms of new families that are interested in, in working with us, would you say? I mean, we're getting a ton of day. Um, okay. I think people are, are really stressed even more now than ever. Um, yeah. You know, this process I think has always been, you know, something that is difficult to navigate. And now with everything that's changing and it's hitting everyone, this isn't just, you know, one piece of the world or just us, it's, it's the worldwide. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, I would say we're getting tons of inquiries a day, say that. But the biggest thing is just understanding kind of, the major questions that they're having. I think people are stressed, um, beyond stressed, just with 
what's happening, you know, in their current situations, never mind trying to think about this. But right. I would say more recently, they're starting to come out of it and, and start to think about it um, because it's, it's at hand. You know, summer opportunities are changing and testing is changing. I mean, what are you seeing from, from your students that are kind of some of the big questions? Yeah, I mean, I think that initially, Erica, there were a lot of a lot of questions came immediately after the school closures um, back in March. And so families were just sort of like, what's going to happen? What's the impact going to be? And then I think people started to settle into a little bit of a routine. But now that we're moving to the end of the school year, and we're having these announcements from the UC that are, you know, changing their testing policy. We're seeing, um, as of yesterday, Dartmouth was the second Ivy that went test optional officially for the coming year. Um, there are a lot of things that are changing, and I think families are trying to get a grasp on this thing that sort of is evolving constantly. Mm-hmm. Um, do you feel like, in that context, that that families are asking the same kinds of questions that they've always been asking when they're looking for college advising, um, or are their expectations and concerns a little bit different? You know, I think, unfortunately, there's been a a shift in some of the questions, and I think it's because Mm -hmm. we're seeing more independent educational consultants, you know, pop up, and it's going in the wrong direction. Um, You know, I think people are trying to figure out how do you game the system? How can we make this process easier? Um, and, you know, for us, it's a very ethical and genuine process, and it, it should be for each student. Um, so some of the questions that are popping up are, you know, is there a way to make this application process easier? You know, my my child interested in pre-med, should they apply differently? And, you know, we all know how we feel about that. I don't know if you want to kind of address that topic a little bit. I don't know if, <laughs> if you're seeing it, but I'm hearing it, which is unfortunate. Well, I think one of the great things about our process um, is I don't get a lot of those questions because those families have already talked to you. Right. And because those families have talked to you and you've said, you know, we don't work that way, they don't often make their way to, to talk with me. Um, I do think that, I think sometimes that there's just a, a sort of a misconception about what this process kind of looks like. And mm-hmm. even those who are looking to, you know, quote, game the system or figure out a, a strategy that they can leverage for the best possible option, I think that tends to lead them in the wrong direction. Absolutely. Um, not just in terms of like what's ethical, because it certainly is, but also what's successful. Um, if you're manufacturing sort of a persona for a student that doesn't really fit who that student is, that can be really challenging. Authenticity is one of the biggest pieces of what we do and one of the things that we really champion with our students. Um, And I think the expectation that you can sort of program uh, an approach to this process that will be successful uh, is is really the wrong way of of thinking about it. Yeah. Yeah, formula pops up quite a bit. (laughs) What is the formula? (laughs) I'm like, well, there is no formula. It's supposed to be unique to your child. And they're like, some people don't hear that. And some people do. I just had a great conversation earlier and mom totally understood what I was, you know, explaining as to why these choices are specific for her daughter and not, you know, a blanket. These are the things you should do if you want to go to an Ivy. It It doesn't work that way. And, and it's great to have those conversations, but I, I wonder, do you get any sense for where that sort of, um, that perspective is coming from? Is it coming from other people within the community where families are saying, I heard from my friends or, you know, this and that, or is it coming from talking to other um, organizations and then coming to us and re- reusing the language that other organizations are using? Um, 
how is this becoming a part of the conversation? You know, I would say in the past, it was coming from the chatter of parents or Mm -hmm. other students and just making it more stressful. So it was just the myths that were happening in town or in their school. I, I feel like that has shifted. You know, I can tell when somebody's had a conversation with another company mm-hmm. because they're asking similar questions um, and they're they're just not genuine questions. So it, it, I'm glad that I'm able to tell them kind of what they should be looking for. Um, you know, we even have a checklist that we've created that's on our website to say, these are things you should look for to make sure you find the right person. It may not be us, but we want you to have a great process and find the right person to have support through this process. Yeah, the the parent piece I think was really interesting. I used to kick off some of my calls with families by saying, um, "Working with us gives you permission not to listen to the right. parents in your community anymore. <laughs> yes. so you don't have to worry about that parent grapevine because yeah. if you have a question, you can come here and yeah. we'll answer that. And the, and the podcast also helps with that. If you have a question, I'm sure we've talked about it in a past episode. You can come find an answer for that question. That's part of what we want to be able to do here as a part of this program. Um, but you know, I, I think. Sometimes parents also just, they hear the chatter and they don't quite know what to ask. What, what are some questions that you feel are really good questions that you get from parents where you say, yeah, you're on the right track. You're asking the right things. Let's, let's help support our listeners if they're thinking about finding an independent counselor to work with. How you know, can they find the right one? Yeah, I think, you know, some of the great questions are just really asking about why us, you know, why should we even consider you? And I, you know, certainly understanding kind of, I mean, we've been doing this for a long time, you know, more than 20 years. Um, I think also understanding who you're working with. Um, This is not a bait and switch. Whoever you see on our website, those are our experts. I mean, we have 30 experts nationwide and it's something where we're very strategic on who we bring on. As you know, I mean, you have to have that admissions experience, senior level, and understand this process. Um, So it's not just an essay editor or a professor that's done this or a parent that has done this. Um, So I really kind of take a step back and and kind of explain who we are as an organization. You know, having a parent company like Bright Horizons is huge, obviously. Um, But more experience, understanding the landscape, um, the professional development our team goes through and how we work as a team, I think is the biggest feature. Um, Knowing that, you know, we have a bigger resource. It's not just one person. Um, and, you know, you can, ta- you can explain how we do the team, but being able to tap, you know, so many unique individuals with such great experience um, is going to be a huge piece um, to really figure out fit and matching. Yeah. You know, I talk through and, and learn more about each student to understand who would work well with that student um, because personality and style are going to be the biggest assets to a good process. They are. Um, and and that's, <laughs> I've seen that too. I mean, I, I think that sometimes families get the impression that where that person worked makes that person the best fit for my kid. Mm-hmm. And I think what they miss about our team approach is that we share so much information that, that I have a really good grasp after being here for almost seven years of how the IV admission process works because I have colleagues who worked in those offices. And so that helps to inform my ability to do that but there are certain students who would get along much better with me than with one of my colleagues who did have yep. that experience and vice versa. And so yep. it's more about who do you want to, who's, whose face do you want to see when you're showing up for those meetings and right. whose style works for you? And, you know, how do you sort of make sure that your student is getting the right kind of connection? 
um, I wanted to speak to that team approach. I pulled up our, our team's uh, conversations. Someone just this morning said, what are some colleges that come to mind that have a culturally diverse student body but are outside urban areas? And that's a kind of question that somebody could just ask our team of 30 and get some great responses. Right away. Whereas an office of one, it's like, <laughs> yep. gosh, I don't know. How am I going to answer this question? Mm-hmm. Um, so it's really, really wonderful, I think, to have that, that, that team support. Um, I just want to actually highlight the teams. I've been talking about that. And I think, I think people are getting that even more now because now that we're all virtual because mm-hmm. of this situation, people have heard of Zoom. They have heard of Teams. And when I say our team has an internal team, they're like, that's amazing because it's yeah. instant. You know, you can ask a question or if something new just popped up. And like you're saying, we just, you know, who we're hearing about is te- test optional. It's live and everybody's getting it right away. That's right. And that's, that's a big part of what, what we do and what we care about. And I, I think, you know, going back to the other thing that you had said about experience working in admission offices, I think that, you know, some people really prioritize that others don't, obviously that's something we care about deeply. And I wanted to sort of point out why that matters. I think the reason it matters is because we have a good sense of what should you spend your time focusing on? What are the components of the application where you should really be invested in making this stronger? And what are some things that maybe you don't have to spend hours working on? A great example of this would be a resume, right? So a lot of independents, I think, who haven't worked in admission might say, we've got to polish up your resume. We've got to choose the right font. The format's got to be awesome. Let's make sure that it looks really sharp. And when I worked in admission and I saw a resume, I was just like, oh, whatever. I threw it aside, right? I can, yeah. <laughs> because it wasn't a required portion of the application. Yep. And I think that my ability to say to a family, you know, you don't have to worry about that. What's more important is the language you choose and how you put that in the application. That saves them hours of work and stress over a component that's really not helpful in the application process. Um, what are um, some more things that you're seeing in terms of shifts? I mean, you've been here for a while, Erica. You were here when I started, um, I, I think, what, 10, 10 years that you've been? Almost, yeah. Okay. So <laughs> what have been some changes you've seen over the course of this decade in terms of what people are asking for, how they're engaging with this process? Has there been a noticeable shift or are most of the questions still the same as they were 10 years ago? You know, I think the biggest thing has been um, when families start with us. I, I mm. think that has changed quite a bit. You know, when I first started here, it was the major, you know, focus was on juniors, rising seniors, um, because yeah. I don't think everybody knew that you should start a process early or they didn't have the questions. And now it's, I mean, I have rising eighth graders and I think parents are stressing out too early because they're listening to the chatter at school or, you know, with their friends and and just don't know what to do. Um, So we're seeing people start earlier, which I think is helpful just to have that soundboard. Like they can turn to you and ask you these questions and you can say that's a fact or that is absolutely not true. Um, And I think that that helps on any parent stress level. I mean, my kids are younger and I have questions and I, it has nothing to do with where they end up. It's more of peace of mind. Um, so I know I've questions. gotten some of those questions from you, Erica. <laughs> I know. Um, and again, my end goal is not, again, um, but I think some of the conversations, you know, are changing in more close at hand um, yeah. with some of the things that I think, I think it's just more independent people popping up and saying they can do certain things. And they're asking us, you know, do we help with, you know, summer opportunities and, you know, making that connection. And that's not what we're here for. I mean, ultimately, as you, I mean, you can speak to it more than I can, but, you know, we obviously want to make sure we, we 
make certain recommendations for opportunities, but the student has to genuinely be interested. You know, how could you apply for a summer program if you have no interest in it and can't speak to it? That's right. why would we edit that essay? That's just not our, that's not what we do. Um, or, you know, just kind of, I think it, more of it is, is just starting to turn in a different direction of just not being genuine and organic for a student, which we know is just not the right, right path. Um, yeah. One of the things I love, we just redesigned our website um, and you can go to getintocollege.com to visit it. And right up there at the front is this great um, tagline. I don't know who came up with it. It was fantastic. It says, uh, your achievements, our expertise. And what that really reinforces is that our, we're not pushing you across the line. We're helping you to see the path that's going to be the most effective for you and your family. And we certainly relieve stress. We take a lot of the college conversations that happen at the dinner table and we move them to our offices so that we're having them with the students. I think that that's huge. And we make sure that students are finding the path that's going to be really best for them. Um, so I, you know, I think, I think it's great. You guys are doing such a wonderful job, um, in client services of, of helping families to understand what it is that we do so that when I talk to families, they absolutely have the right mindset. So I think that that's, that's great. Any final tips that you would give, uh, to families as they're thinking about this option? You know, I think the major thing is definitely do your research. I, I, you know, I, totally feel 100% that you want to find the right person for your for your child. Mm-hmm. You know, that's where success lies. Um, you know, ultimately, the the major piece is background experience, how they approach the process, um, and just making sure they have that comfort level. Um, and, you know, getting just more information. I think do your due diligence. Don't feel like you can't ask questions. I have families that come to me with, you know, 30 questions and then follow up with 30 more. And that's totally fine. That's what I'm here for. Um, and I think it also helps, like you're saying, by the time a family gets to you, they understand what we do, how we do it, how we help, where we can support. Um, and one other thing I think that that has popped up, which I, I didn't mention just with some of the things with COVID, you know, and people asking about continuing to show their interest, which I think has also been a hot point, is still being able to to show that interest by doing those college visits and tours yeah. and signing up, which we didn't get to, but um, that was another question that came up of, you know, should I apply to 15 to 20 schools? And it's like, how could you possibly show interest at 20 schools? You know, make sure the process makes sense and you're finding the best fit school. Um, it's not just name for sure. That's right. That's right. And, and, you know, the other piece, and we'll talk about later in the radio show, we always have a college finance expert who comes on and talks about a particular portion of our, uh, you know, of the finance landscape. That's another huge piece of what we do here is we've got this deep roster of college finance experts, which I think, I don't know if you ever hear other people that come to you and and ask specifically about that because it's such a rare element of what we have that I think almost nobody else does. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, this has not been like a you know, college coach is the best, but we are, um, <laughs> but hopefully you've gotten some suggestions for some things that you can ask. And, and, uh, Erica, I want to thank you for, for coming on to talk about Absolutely. It. Thanks for having me. Of course. Um, sure. folks uh, don't go away. When we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about what to do this summer. Now that things are a little bit unusual, stick around. When it's time to go through the college admissions process, look to Bright Horizons College Coach for ethical guidance and customized support. Our educators will get to know your students' ambitions and talents, help highlight hard-won achievements, and create a plan for getting into a top-choice school. 
That plan includes helping your student choose classes and extracurriculars, create a college list, brainstorm and edit essays, and navigate college financing options. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To submit a question for an upcoming listener Q&A segment or to suggest an idea for a future segment, please send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the show. Um, I am joined here by my colleague, Jen Simons. You can see her in that video right next to me. Hey, Jen, how's it going? Great. Good to see you, Ian. And Jen's here for our office hours segment. And office hours is usually a little bit more of a casual discussion about some of the things that are happening within the um, current landscape of college admission. And I wanted to start, Jen, with an email that I got from one of my freshmen. Um, because I think it's a really, it's a really great email. She's a great kid. Um, she just reached out. Hi, Ian. I love the exclamation point. I was wondering if there's a chance that I could do some community service over summer break before next school year's tight schedule. However, especially given the current circumstances, I don't really know where to start. Uh, do you have any sources of where I could look for some potential opportunities? Thought it was a, that was a really nice email. Um, and we've had other conversations about things that are academic, how to keep involved and, and connected over the course of the summer. But I want to sort of just use that as a springboard for us to discuss a little bit about what this this summer could be. Um, so what are the conversations that you're having with your students and, and how are you talking to them about how this summer might be different from a typical summer? Well, I mean, it's, it's going to be different, but I want them to look at this as an opportunity, like everything else. If anything good comes out of this COVID situation and how it's impacted students. One of the things that's affected me um, the most is reading about how kids are getting more sleep. Um, so that's a really good thing. Yeah, it's um, great. The, the other thing is that I think to be honest, expectations have shifted. We don't know exactly what that means, but obviously no one is going to be able to do, no one, no matter where you are in the world, you're not going to be able to do what you would have done, what you could have done, you know, previously. And so right. I want you to think about this as an opportunity to kind of think big, think creatively and use this, if you will. And I'll also give you some practical suggestions if that's not your cup of tea, but use this as you, as you will, an opportunity to, um, do something that's connected to, I don't want to say passion because that's, you know, an overused word, but yeah. a hobby, um, something that's always intrigued you, have a little fun, go back to um, what the purpose of summer kind of was. And I'm not talking about vacations or, you know, because that's past. And quite frankly, I think we've all had a, a little too much time with our, well, speaking for myself, <laughs> I don't know, um, with our families, you know, but I, I'll give you an example. Yeah. Um, a student of mine is very, very interested in beekeeping. And we found a course for her through Penn State University, a, you know, a non-credit bearing course, how to start a beekeeping, you know, practice or enterprise or whatever word That's you would awesome. use to describe. Yeah, exactly. Um, the idea that you could, okay, so everybody's into cooking, everybody has sourdough starter, all this sure. stuff. But, you know, the fact that you could take a cooking class online 
with friends um, and then organize something afterwards for your teachers when we come out of hibernation or we come out of, you know, and, and so don't just like do something. Don't just take that cooking class online, but do what I encourage my students to do with all extracurriculars, dig in a little deeper and say, okay, the first step is taking the cooking class online. The second step is organizing a virtual dinner with my friends. The third step is inviting our teachers. And the fourth step is that, you know, we focus on a particular cuisine and we have it all in French or something. You know what I mean? Like you just, you just want to keep on deepening it and giving it more impact. And so it doesn't have to be something serious. I'll talk about serious things, but it could be something that you truly have always wanted to explore and enjoy. I love, I mean, that's exactly, I mean, you, I think I've been telling students, we're not looking to perfectly replace the things that have gone away. Right. And that's, that's impossible. You can't say, all right, well, I'm going to find a way to do beach volleyball tournaments Mm -hmm. at home by myself. And that's not going to work. Right. But you can cultivate these other interests and that step-by-step process, I think is so interesting and a really great way of putting it that you can always continue to deepen. How can I involve more people? How can I make this have an educational component? Where, what can I do to inform myself? Bringing some of that elements of, of learning and community into it. We're all really starved for community, I think, at this point. And, and so having some opportunities to create that, I think, could be really helpful. Um, I also think about the step-by-step process in terms of using two summers. So this is true for sophomores and freshmen, but you can almost think about what would I like to do next summer? Um, assuming that things are a little bit more normal. Is there an internship? Is there an opportunity that I want to take advantage of? And given that, what would I want to have on my resume in order to be competitive for that internship? Is it a certain set of skills? Is it some reading that I want to do? Is it expertise that I need to develop? Right. So your student who's interested in beekeeping could go and work at a professional beekeeping colony if they've you know, learned all of these components of beekeeping. And so that opens doors later on down the road that maybe they're not expecting at this point. No, absolutely. Talking about conservation, you know, things like that, yeah. ultimately. So speaking of community service in particular, I think that this is one of the areas that's challenging because we think of community service as sort of shoulder to shoulder, hands in the dirt, you know, uh, you know planting trees, working with people in person. Um, that's very hard to do now. Uh, how should students think about things like community service? And I'll sort of put the asterisk here. Of course, community service is not prioritized by most schools above and beyond other kinds of activities. But for those students who are interested in connecting to their community, what can they be doing now? It's funny that that's how you folks um, on the West Coast think about community service, hands in the dirt. My hands aren't in the dirt. No, I think about going to hospitals and, you know, teaching and not getting dirty. I don't want to get dirty. So um, basically, this is a... I'll show you around. We'll do a slew planting. It'll be great. No, go ahead. All right, but then you're going to come here. We're going to like sit in the library or something. That sounds great. I love books. But so I think this is a a fabulous time to do community service. First of all, if you live in the U.S., you know, there's a presidential election. There are some things going on in terms of, you know, political causes that you might be um, interested in joining. Um, I have my students go on to Indeed, Chegg, all the regular, you know, uh, search sites and type in 
virtual high school community service, volunteering, you know, high school volunteers, um, you know, things like that, just, just sort of search for those things. And there are lots of community service opportunities mm -hmm. that are online. Um, I will also say though, because this is one of the most common questions, most commonly asked questions I get asked, um, do colleges require community service on a resume or in an application? And of course, like you said, the answer is no. The answer is no for most high schools and the answer is no um, for colleges and universities. Colleges don't require it. It's obviously a good thing to do, but you don't have to do it. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, there are lots of opportunities that you can take that are virtual opportunities to still do community service you can also do literally community service in your community by contacting the local school district, um, you know, heads, and they'll be reading their emails over the summer for sure and say, what can I do? What can I do in my local hospital? How can I reach out? Even, even asking, you know, parents around the, you know, most towns or many towns, I should say, have Facebook groups, you know, right. how can I be a service to you and your children? Start at that grassroots level and you'll be surprised at how many, or the elderly. I mean, you know, that's been really heartening in our community. We've had people reaching out to, um, you know, older people and these, how can I help? And then how do I take that to the next level? How do I organize something? How do I make it into something lasting? That's how it becomes more of an extracurricular that you can list on your resume, because of course, I'm not going to pretend that that's not relevant. It is. No, it certainly is. And I think the resume is an important thing to keep in mind. I, I just sort of slammed resumes in the last segment. But when we keep a list of activities that we have, because that's what colleges are interested in looking at, um, you should be keeping track of the things that you're participating in and writing down details and even potentially journal journaling about some of these things. Because your goal later on is to convey to colleges what it was that you were actually doing. What are the things that I spent my time doing during this period? Um, I've also, you know, Jen, I've told some students, like, one of the best ways to think about this is if you're in an interview with a college admission officer in the fall, and they say, what did you do while you were home for five months? Well, what, what, how did you spend your time? You don't want the answer to that question to be, I played video games. I played a lot of video games, right? You want to have some things that you were actually engaged with, that you connected in community and, and that you were focused on. And some of these things can be more independent and solitary, like reading. Maybe there's some form of study that you're engaging in that's for you only. And then some of them can be more community oriented. And I think that that's perffectly fine as well. Absolutely. Um, Ian, take, call your favorite call. Yeah, nobody call. Email your favorite teacher Yeah. and say, you know, my English teacher, what books, what are you... Actually, okay, you ready for this? You email your English teacher, what are your favorite books? What are your must read outside of the curriculum books? But also do that with your math teacher and your science yeah. teacher and your principal and put together a book list for your friends of the, this is Mrs. Harris's favorite book. This is Mr. Martin's favorite book and, and create a, a book club around that. Um, interview them, you know, that's something you can do. You can contact, um, you know, professionals in your community and say, how did you get to be in the job that you are in? Can I interview you and put together a web series? I mean, like the sky's the limit. You can a hundred percent do an online class. That's a great fallback. No problem. And, and sure. do that. But think about this summer again, as an opportunity to really be creative and do something, you know, a little bit out of the box, so to speak. Yeah. And as a younger student, I think there's even more flexibility in that space. It feels a little bit less urgent. Like, oh, I've only got 
one summer left, I've really got to make this work. Um, I think if you are a freshman, if you're a rising freshman, even if you're a sophomore, like you don't necessarily have to think about this as a make or break sort of situation. And what you said, Jen, about shifting expectations, I think is really important. Um, you know, I alluded to this in the first segment, but now we have, I think, two, maybe three IVs that are test optional, which we thought we would never see the day. Um, and I think that there are other, they're adjusting to the times, they're adjusting their expectations. And I think we're going to see similar kinds of things in terms of what summers traditionally look like. So take some comfort, I think, in that shift and, and find what's going to work best for you. Do you have any other sort of thoughts or, or tips that we can send along to students as they're looking? I, I'm, I would love to plug our blog, um, blog.getintocollege.com. We've had some great articles on community service on how to engage in STEM work over the summer. Um, you know, just a lot of really great tips. So go to our blog. You'll find some really good tips and advice there. That's what I sent my student who has sent me that email. Um, but anything else that you wanted to, to share, Jen? <laughs> I should have had something like, you know, prepared the way you do in an interview that says, yeah, (laughs) yeah, I I don't, I really, I just, I wish everyone good luck. Um, You know, hopefully we're turning a corner. And as I've said to all the students, we're all in this together. So, you know, just, just try to, as I've said um, before, have fun. Ian, it's always a treat to talk to you and uh, it's good to see you. Awesome. Great to see you too. And, and folks, um, if you'd like to see more of me, Jen won't be there, but in the next segment, uh, we will be talking a little bit about the PSAT and its relationship to scholarships. Uh, So don't go away if you want to be a part of that conversation. College admissions can be stressful but Bright Horizons College Coach is here to help. Our college experts who worked in admissions and financial aid at some of the nation's most selective institutions offer ethical, customized assistance based on each student's individual strengths and interests. Students receive one-on-one guidance throughout the process, and our 100% success rate means all of our students have been accepted to college. Visit getintocollege.com to learn more. You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To submit a question for an upcoming listener Q&A segment or to suggest an idea for a future segment, please send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the show. In our final segment for the show today, we are going to talk a little bit about the PSAT and scholarships. And as you can see here on the screen with me, we've got uh, my colleague, Michelle Richardson, who's a college finance expert. Hey, Michelle, welcome to the show. Hey, Ian. Thanks for having me. I'm really glad to have you. We're going to talk a little bit about the PSAT. Now, so much conversation over the last couple of months in the COVID uh, scenario has been around SAT and ACT and different cancellations. And nobody's really talking about the PSAT. I think that's because it's a test that largely occurs within the fall of typically a student's student's junior year, but also their sophomore year. And the PSAT is sort of an unusual test. Um, It's very similar to the SAT. 
uh, it's more of a practice version. So colleges are never actually going to see the results that you get on your PSAT. They're completely hidden from the application process, which I think relieves some of the pressure and the burden on getting a good score there. And I always tell students, hey, you can treat the PSAT like a dry run through of the SAT. It'll introduce you to the exam and give you a sense of what to expect. Mm -hmm. But the PSAT, especially in the junior year, plays a really particular role in probably the most well-known merit scholarship or the only merit scholarship by definition, right? Because they've trademarked the term merit scholarship. I don't actually know if that's true. Uh, the national merit scholarship, right? So um, how you do on the PSAT determines whether you qualify for the national merit scholarship process. And there are many, many steps through the process. And Michelle's going to talk to us a little bit about what that kind of looks like. Um, do you feel like I missed anything? in uh, explaining what the PSAT is at a, at a fundamental level? No, I think you did a, a great job in explaining great. it. You As can come always, on the show Ian. anytime. Anytime you want to be on the show, <laughs> you just come right on and we'll talk about all the things that you want. Okay, so let's say, let's talk about some of the, uh, the PSAT and the relationship through National Merit Scholarship. Um, there are lots of steps, right? It's not just about showing up for this one test and then you get a pile of money. Um, so what are the basic requirements to get to the semifinalist stage of the National Merit uh, Scholarship Program? Sure. So the National Merit Scholarship Corporation basically requires four things that the students must meet. Um, three of them are very easy. They have to be enrolled as a high school student working towards, you know, progressing to graduation. They have to plan to enroll full-time in uh, eligible college in the fall following high school. Um, they have to be a U.S. citizen or a U.S. permanent resident working towards uh, citizenship. Um, and then the final thing is they have to earn a, a top PSAT score. Okay. And, that, and that's really, I mean, the other three, I think, are things that tend to be you know, if you're enrolled in high school, you're going to enroll full time, you're going to be a U.S. citizen or U.S. permanent resident. Those are things that are pretty steady for, for, for most students that are taking the PSAT. Um, they don't tend to fluctuate all that much, but the PSAT score does. Um, and there are some real effects of the PSAT score. Um, so what is a top PSAT score for students to qualify for the national merit uh, semifinalist designation? I don't think it's going to be super cut and dry. Uh, you are exactly correct. Uh, you know, top scores are going to vary by state, but generally speaking, a student will need to score in the top 1% of the high school juniors in order to qualify for that national semifinalist designation. Um, you know, typically about 1.6 million students take the PSAT and about 16,000 are named semifinalists. So you can see that it's a pretty small percentage. Right, right. And a really small uh, percentage. And, and I think, you know, we'll talk a little bit about sort of what the process continues on from there. But I do think that there is an important thing for students and families to keep in mind is that this is a really small percentage. And um, a lot of families think, okay, we're going to take the PSAT. It's the National Merit Scholarship Qualifying Test. And this is going to be the avenue towards money. Um, it's really a very small percentage of students that even get to that semifinalist status. And so for the overwhelming majority of kids, the PSAT plays a great role as a practice version of the SAT and doesn't necessarily carry a lot of 
weight in terms of what the process looks like later on. But if you have a shot at that 1%, I think that it does make a big difference um, in terms of potential funding down the road. So let's say um, a student is notified they're a semifinalist. And you know this happens when they're seniors, right? Um, Correct. What are the other steps that are necessary to go from that semifinalist status to being a finalist? Sure. So basically they have to go through an application process and obviously they have to have a very high academic record that consistently corresponds with their high PSAT score. Right. Um, they need to have an excellent recommendation or endorsement by a school official as part of that application. And in the end, once they take the SAT or now the ACT, Right. Uh, they can earn a score. Um, that score has to basically, again, coincide with their score that they received on, on the PSAT. So there's some consistency there. I think it's called a, a confirming score. Is that is that what the terminology is? Is something uh, something like that? Um, I believe just, you're correct. Yeah, the, the score confirms that what you got in the PSAT is also bears out in terms of the SAT or the ACT. Right. And you know, you mentioned uh, potential application components. I think it's important for families to understand that they can typically repurpose things that they have are using for their college applications for the sake of the national merit process. It's typically not something that has to be entirely created uh, from scratch. Um, now, uh, how do students sort of know, you know, we've got 16,000 students that are named semifinalists and how many end up being finalists? What's the, the rate at which students are sort of narrowed down into that final group and then, and then guaranteed a scholarship award? Yeah, that's a, a kind of a two part. So approximately about 15,000 out of that 16,000 become finalists. Okay. Um, and those students are typically notified in, in February, but whether or not their finalist designation allows them the opportunity to receive an actual scholarship amount um, can uh, depend on, on various uh, factors. Um, in the information, you know, we've read about 50 to 60% of finalists actually receive a scholarship because of the national merit finalist designation. And, and how is a student going to have, how do they know whether they're going to receive money or not? I mean, it's really, that seems like quite a small number. You go through all this process, you become a finalist for the national merit scholarship. And then only about half of those people, 50 to 60% actually get dollars. How do you figure that out? Um, great question. So uh, funding is typically put into do two different buckets. So there's a, a college-sponsored National Merit uh, Scholarship Award, or there's a, a corporate-sponsored um, award. And basically, the college-sponsored award is provided by the college that the student designates as their first choice uh, institution. But the one of the big factors with that is, um, you know, the college and the institutional policies uh, determine if they offer any scholarships and how many and, and for what amount. So it really does vary by, by college. Gotcha. So not all colleges provide scholarship funding uh, for Correct. National Merit finalists. And this is actually something that I've I tend to go over with some of my students when they put such a heavy emphasis on the PSAT. If I take a look at what their actual college list, their prospective college list looks like, we talk about what the role is 
of schools being member institutions. So which, which colleges actually do provide funding? And, and, and here's the sticky, where do, where do families find this information? How do they know if colleges are providing this kind of funding through the National Merit Program? Um, you know, roughly about for 2020, uh, 175 or so colleges, uh, both public and private, um, are offering college-sponsored scholarships. Mm. Um, however, the very highly selective top colleges do not recognize this designation. And, right. you know, one thing to keep in mind is those colleges don't award any merit scholarships, right? So the national merit is is like an extension of the college awarding a, a merit scholarship. So, right. you know, the the Ivy Leagues, the, you know, MIT, the Stanfords of the, you know, of the country are not going to um, award a scholarship based on on this designation. Right. And, and that's really an important piece is that I think a lot of the students who are going to be finalists for the National Merit Program are going to typically set their sights fairly high because they're going to be the kinds of students that also have strong grades. They have strong SAT scores as confirming scores. They've got great letters of recommendation from their school, all of those components. And so I think it's really important to understand that where the National Merit Scholarship pops up is not going to be necessarily in those highly, highly selective schools that some of those students might be aiming for. And that's a really sort of funky aspect of the National Merit Scholarship that seems very counterintuitive to families when we talk about it, but is is part of the reality of what the National Merit Scholarship uh, Program kind of looks like. So, um, what's the what sort of is the funding amount? How, how much can can students count on getting? Um, what is the you know what does the dollar amount look like? How lucrative is this award? And are there any sort of additional kinds of awards that students might get for being National Merit Scholars? Yeah, sure. Um, we get this question a lot when we speak with with families. You know, they they are very excited that they received the you know notification that their student became a, a finalist. And you know, for some institutions, the awards can be um, you know pretty lucrative. For example, uh, Boston University they uh, offer a twenty five thousand uh, dollar renewable scholarship for this designation. So, oh. you know, that's 25,000 for four years. So that's, you know, a nice chunk of change, if you will. Um, yeah, it is. Um, you know, the University of uh, USC, for example, they give half a tuition scholarship for uh, their uh, national merit finalist. Uh, but we also have some schools that you know, only award maybe 500 or up to, to 2000. And, and sometimes families are uh, disappointed with that, you know, especially since it's, you know, quite an honor um, yeah. and the students have worked very hard for, for this designation. Um, the National Merit, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, Scholarship Corporation, they will cover up to $2,000 in a college sponsored um, Awards, so uh, that that uh, can can be helpful. But when you're looking at some colleges costing, you know, seventy five thousand dollars a year, it it uh, might not be exactly what the the families were hoping for. And and so I think it it often parallels what we see with other kinds of recruitment scholarships, which is that those schools that might be a no problem school or a just right school for a student are going to be the ones that are more likely to offer a significant 
scholarship for students that are National Merit Scholars, not necessarily as a part of the program, because the program doesn't designate that they need to offer that kind of a scholarship, but because the student has that particular label attached to who they are and what they're coming into campus to offer. I recall hearing something about the University of Oklahoma offering a pretty lucrative national merit or scholarship for national merit scholars, which makes their number of national merit scholars actually quite high on their campus because they offer such a nice award. So it's, it's very interesting. I think the national merit scholarship is not quite what people expect when they hear about it, um, but it, it's, it's very important to understand how these sort of pieces uh, fit together. Um, what should students and families do to maximize their chances of, of winning a National Merit Scholarship, and especially of, of making sure that those dollars count towards their, their college where they choose to attend? Sure. You know, I think there's a, a few things. You know, obviously, like when we're talking with any student, you know, mm -hmm. we encourage them to study or prep for the exam, right? Um, doing the PSAT will help them in the long run for their you know, SAT, um, you know, uh, they should put together a, a great application if, if they are designated as a, as a semifinalist, um, you know, and, and set reasonable expectations. Yes. Uh, but I, I think, you know, one of the, the big things to keep in mind, and, and you already touched on this, is a huge component of maximizing this scholarship is in the college selection process, just like most merit scholarships. So, right. you know, choosing those no problem or maybe just right schools, because those are the institutions that are, um, you know, offering significant dollars and a significant number, like your reference to the University of Oklahoma, you know, a right. much higher number because they want to recruit those students. And so, as always, our conversation comes back to balance, right? And, and really thinking about how these pieces kind of fit together. Um, well, I, I don't know. I must have been someone on the finance team who once told me, you know, if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. Um, the National Merit Scholarship does offer some really great opportunities for students, but it's not a blanket award of significant value across all institutions. And I think that that's really important for families to understand as they go into the, the test season in the fall. Um, Michelle, thanks so much for, for coming on and, and helping talk to me. I always struggle with the National Merit Scholarship, so this was really, really helpful. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you so much, Ian. It's good to see you. Of course, and it's great to have you. Okay, folks, that does it for our show for today, and I want to thank you all for joining us uh, for another episode of Getting In. Next week, we'll have Beth back in the host chair. She's going to be welcoming one of our colleagues, Kenan, who's going to talk a little bit about his PG year, his postgrad year, and then his experiences at William & Mary. So you get a little insight into some stories from college coach educators there. We'll also touch on distance learning and what parents need to know before they borrow to pay for college. Um, in the meantime, again, it's been a really challenging week where we are here recording this episode. Uh, who knows what can happen between today, the 4th, and, and next week, the 11th. Uh, please continue to take care of each other, to be safe, to listen and learn. Um, and let's be sure that, that we're all um, sort of supporting one another through everything. Um, hope you all have a wonderful week, and uh, we look forward to seeing you here next week. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and the team of experts at Bright Horizons College Coach. Join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.